Guys, it's the Blue Bloods coming at you with a really, really huge episode today. We are joined by former Auburn Tigers offensive lineman, now ESPN and SEC Network analyst, and co-host of the three-man front on WJOX 94.5, Mr. Cole Kublik. And we just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your day to come on and talk all kind of football with us today. Hey, I'm glad to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I just want to go ahead and start this interview off uh, with a quick question. Obviously, there's big news out in college football today, um, and that's in the Ivy League canceling the all-fall sports. Um, you know, they're moving them to spring 2021. Um, so I just want to know what your take on this was, and do you think this is even, like, logistically possible? Uh, and how do you think that schools will manage the game day traffic for the three major sports all in one semester? Yeah, I think logistics are something that a lot of people haven't put enough thought into on this. I think especially when you consider just the staff at the individual schools. When you get to spring and you have baseball, softball, uh, you have track, you you think about the medical support that's there, uh, maybe even some of the equipment support that's there. You mentioned things like parking, security, ticketing. uh, All that's got to be taken into consideration. if you were to bump football and basketball there, um, you, you're going to need some assistance in a lot of those categories. Right. Um, and, and I think the most important part of that would be medical training staff. Uh, those guys are usually split pretty thin. Yes, you do have dedicated individuals for each sport. But if you had that many sports going at once, especially with travel and some medical professionals having to travel with teams, it's going to make it a little bit more complicated. It can absolutely be done. Um, because they'll have to get it done this fiscal year. So they'll make it work, and they'll find a way to make it work, uh, regardless of what it costs. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that the, the Ivy League's move is one that I think the conferences, mainly the Power Five conferences, look at as this automatic domino, like a, a lot of people in the media and a, a lot of fans have sort of viewed it as the last few yeah. days. Um, I, I still think that, I mean, clarification on that is that they've canceled competition in the fall. They have not rescheduled football for the spring 100% yet. Uh, I think people thought they were going to announce that today and, and they did not. So, um, there's no definitive answer on you know, when they will play football because I mean, it could start in, start in January. That's not necessarily the spring. So um, it'll be interesting to watch. I, I, I think more along the lines of it could be something that's actually great for the Ivy League. And yeah. it could actually bring – it actually be a way to, to generate some revenue for them. And because I think if you took just the Ivy League and you had their games and their schedules played – in the spring, similar to I me, mean, I was I worked XFL this year, so I'm coming off that. So I saw the amount of people that were interested in it. I mean, now all of a sudden you could be looking at a, a legitimate TV deal. Um, you could be possibly looking at better attendance. Now it's going to hurt some of your other spring sports, but I mean that could end up being a window for them that that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's something that I, I mean I never even took a look at. You know, this is kind of a way to draw more people into I guess watching these teams, and it it's kind of a way that makes, you know, this winter football league work out a little bit better. I mean, you tell me if you had Harvard, Yale, Brown, Cornell on every Saturday from, I mean, I don't know, uh, the end of March till the end of April, beginning of May, 
on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, you know, would you not be watching those games? No, I, 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 absolutely. I'd be locked in. So Yeah, definitely. Uh, you could do some decent numbers with that. For sure, for sure. I mean, I, even the XFL, I was I was so tuned in to the XFL this past year. And, you know, we kind of want to shift more now to next season, this past season, some on-the-field things that we saw. And I want to start out here. You're a former offensive lineman for Auburn, and I'm really intrigued with Panay Sewell out of Oregon, who a lot of experts from what I've been reading are tabbing as one of the best offensive line prospects in some time. Can you just speak on what makes him so special? And do you think all the hype that Sewell is getting is justified at this point? No, I think it's definitely justified. I mean, he is, he is dominant. He is athletic. He is a, a guy that, I mean, he, he has a chance – if we play football and, and he gets to play football this year to sort of be a, a generational talent. I mean, I, I think when you think about offensive linemen, you think at least collegiately, you probably think Orlando pace first. You, you think about Quentin Nelson, um, you know, you, you think about maybe a Jonathan Ogden, uh, you think about a Willie Anderson. There's only been a couple of guys. I mean, realistically that list probably stops with, Quentin Nelson and Orlando Pace. When you're when you're talking about this kind of hype, maybe Tony Mandrich, but that obviously wasn't legit. So I don't think he should be classified with them anymore. But I think Panay Sewell has a chance to be in that category. You know, he's he's big, he's physical, he's flexible, he's athletic, he moves well. Uh, and the scary part about it is, I mean, he still has room to improve technically and fundamentally. And you think about if we did play football this year and he has improved a little bit more and what's he going to look like on film now so uh, I think he deserves it he's played that well to to be discussed as you know the number one overall pick because of Trevor Lawrence that probably won't happen but I mean he's a guy that's he's very special and it it doesn't take a lot of film study to realize uh, just how special he is. I uh, completely agree. I mean, we, we've talked about him a few times on the podcast, and he probably is the best prospect going into next year. And, you know, shifting toward something that since we're both from Alabama, a lot of our listeners are SEC fans. I've caught a lot of hate, a lot of flack from listeners and even Brandon, because I have Florida winning the SEC East next year. I know you are also extremely high on the Gators this upcoming year. Can you tell our listeners and maybe some people who doubt Florida, why this team deserves so much respect and why you are confident that they can compete with a team like Georgia for the SEC East? Well, I think first, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Dan Mullen believer. I think he's that good of a coach. Um, I, I think that I mean, I, when he got the job, I said he was going to win a national championship at Florida. My mind hasn't really changed off of that at all. Um, I, I think when you look at quarterback play, is Kyle Trask, dynamic is he super athletic is he explosive no but I think Dan Mullen understands how to utilize a guy that makes great decisions knows where to go with the football and Kyle Trask can do that um you throw in Emory Jones who could be a changeup at quarterback um along with Malik Davis in the backfield I mean, you have multiple backs actually that have played Kadarius Tony can be sort of your utility player back there in the slot at quarterback at running back. He can take quick passes and turn them into explosive plays. Trayvon Grimes is back, big red zone threat on the outside. Best tight end in college football and Kyle Pitts. Uh, the offensive line has experience. They didn't play great last year, but I actually think returning starters are, are going to be more important this year than maybe any other year of football that we've played. 
I don't think it's going to be an, an overly physical football season uh, because of what we missed in spring, because of what fall practice will probably look like, or let's just say preseason practice, what it's going to look like. So, you know, it's, 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 going, to be, it, it's going to be something totally different. Yeah, so speaking about expecta- uh, expectations for this upcoming season, um, we've had a few debates on this podcast regarding LSU um, and their season this past year. Uh, we know the ceilings or the, the expectations are extremely high, but they've had a lot of major losses from this past season. So what do you think the ceiling is for this LSU team, and what do you think the floor could potentially be? Well, I think the ceiling is still an undefeated regular season, and, and the main reason that I would say that is that the culture is, is still in place. The, the foundation has been laid, and because of the, some of the things that we talked about that players are not going to be able to have going into the season – that matters a little bit more, in my opinion. I mean, these guys just lived it. They just breathed it. They understand that what goes in, what needs to happen in order to put together a championship football season. So from that perspective, I, I think LSU can run the table. I mean, outside of Trevor Lawrence, they probably have the best offensive player in college football uh, in Jamar Chase. They might have the best defensive player in college football uh, in Derek Stingley. Um, you know, I, I think – that on that side of the football in particular, you got a great place for Bo Pelini to start, and that's up front with Abuika and Tyler Shelvin and Glenn Logan. And the middle of that defense is going to be stout. Uh, I, I think the middle of the defense is going to be really good, really solid. And uh, I think obviously Stingley being on one side, he's going to be somebody who makes a difference and is going to allow you to do some different things defensively. Um, and this, this pandemic has probably allowed them to spend more time together uh, watching films, Zoom meetings on the board, different things like that to understand conceptually what Bo Pelini sort of expects from them and wants from them and needs from them. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of high on LSU this year, but part of that is based on what everybody else thinks about them. Obviously, nobody else has any real expectations for what they can do or what they will be. But for me, I mean, I, I think there's a couple superstars on that football team and maybe some guys that nobody's talking about. Uh, I mean, I think Jacoby Stevens is, is going to be a first-round draft pick. Um, I think he makes up a lot of room on the back end. Cordell Flott's a kid that they love. Talked to Dave Aranda about him last year and they were really confident that if they would have had to have thrown him in at one corner spot that they thought he could be the guy. Um, you know, there's just there's, – there's a lot back, even though there's even more gone. But, you know, Dar Rosenthal's played some football up front. And Ingram's a top five guard in the SEC. Uh, Chasson Hines has, has played some guard and actually played some meaningful football. Decula started every game last year. So they lose most of their offensive linemen, but they still have guys who've played and – you know, obviously quarterback is the biggest, the biggest question mark. Obviously not having Joe Brady is a huge question mark, but Innsminger knows the system. I mean, they, they installed that system with Innsminger's blessing last year. It wasn't all his stuff, but he still helped run it. So he knows what it looks like. And you talk to LSU folks, and I mean, they love Miles Brennan. They think he can be great. So I just think that there's a lot more there. And I think the culture that has been built there is obviously one that's going to allow them to have continued success. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's great to hear. Um, Zach mentioned earlier, we're both from Alabama. I grew up an LSU fan. I'm, I live in Baton Rouge now. Um, and I know that I brought LSU up, so I can't let that fall on you. Like I said, I'm in Baton Rouge, so I know that has to be a little intimidating to you, at least a little bit. You were on the last Auburn team that beat LSU in Death Valley. Uh, but the people are wondering, 
what is Auburn's holdup in Baton Rouge? I mean, you name it, whether it's um, whether it's bad fortune, whether it's great LSU teams, whether it's poor game planning, lack of execution, I mean, all of it, every single thing. It seems to be one thing uh, and maybe one of those things uh, with an exclamation point beside it um, every, every game or every time that they play over there. But, you know, whether it's just, you know, running into a couple of freak athletes or – you know, not you know, taking your foot off the gas and, and not necessarily finishing a game offensively, a couple of late turnovers, some crazy things happening one way or the other. I mean, it just – it always seems to be something over there when, when Auburn goes to play. And, you know, it kind of makes the, the, the lore of that cigar game a little bit more crazy. Right. And I mean, as an Auburn graduate, too, I cannot stand going to Baton Rouge. I've witnessed a beatdown at the hands of Leonard Fournette in person. It was the worst game I think I've ever been to as an Auburn fan. And But I do want to stay in the SEC, but move to another team that a lot of experts seem to be torn on, and that's Texas A&M. I mean, we've seen this the expectations of this team fluctuate year to year, but Jimbo Fisher is entering year three with a senior quarterback that has a lot of experience in Kellen Mond. Do you think the Aggies finally break through? And in your opinion, why did they always seem to be a few players or a game or two away from competing for the SEC West? I mean, I, I think it depends on on your definition of breakthrough. Like, what is – when you put it into context, breakthrough, what is that for you? It's going to be something different for, for most different people. Um, if you're talking about getting to double-digit wins, yes, I think that can happen. Winning the West, probably not, but I do think they're going to be in a position to with a couple of weeks left in the season. I mean, the schedule lines up great. They've got a dual-threat quarterback who still has some room to grow in an offensive scheme that's super complicated. And I think there can be a meet in the middle between Jimbo Fisher and Kellen Mond as to sort of make that thing a little bit easier. I think they have a good offensive line. Um, I like Carson Green. I like Kenyon Green. I think those two are solid football players. Um, I think Dan Moore's a pretty good football player. Isaiah Spiller obviously got a lot of reps last year. Great receiving crew. Probably the best group of tight ends in all of college football. Uh, my questions are on defense. Uh, I think offense is going to be fine. I think the offense can win them a lot of games. But uh, the middle of the defense has a chance to be solid. Uh, Marvin Leal, Bobby Brown has the makings of a star. We're still waiting on Michael Clemens to come around. Uh, you know, you, you, you see Anthony Hines and Buddy Johnson, and they, they look like SEC linebackers at times. Uh, Jermani Richardson and Elijah Blades are guys that, that they have high hopes for in that secondary. And they got a great coordinator in Elko on that side of the football. So uh, depth will be a huge concern for them. And then, like you guys said, just mentally, emotionally sort of getting over the hump, something that they haven't done a whole lot. I just don't think that for a long time they, they went out of their way to build themselves like an SEC team. Uh, you know, you get an Eric McCoy or a Jake Matthews every now and then or a Miles Garrett every now and then, but you never had an entire offensive line of what appeared to be SEC-type guys or D-line of SEC-type guys. So I, I think that Jimbo is going out of his way to build it that way a little bit more. They're not as, a, they're not as much of an edgy team or a, a team that relies on space or a quick twitch team. He's bringing more power to that lineup, and I think a lack of bulk and a lack of power – is what they've been missing for a long time. Right. I couldn't agree with you anymore. Um, so I, I do want to talk about something that you released uh, pretty recently. You released your top five linebackers in the SEC, um, and you had Dylan Moses from Alabama as the number one linebacker in the conference. 
Can you speak on what makes Moses the best linebacker in the SEC and how big of an impact his absence was this past season with Alabama? Yeah, not having him out there was huge. I, I think more so for leadership and some of the vocal stuff. But um, he's got instincts. I mean, he, he, he is a guy that arrives at the football before plays develop. Uh, maybe not as quickly as a Reuben Foster or with as much power as a Reggie Ragland, but he, he understands it and he gets it. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have had any problem putting Nick Bolton number one. And to be honest with you, considering Moses coming off an ACL, I probably should have. Um, right. I think Moses is just, uh, uh, I mean, he has more God given ability. He's, he's a better athlete at the position, which is probably why I ended up selecting him to go there. But I mean, he's just a, he's a special talent. And in that system, in that scheme where it's designed for him to make a lot of plays, he understands how to make them. Right. And I want to shift to the most important position on the field, arguably, is the quarterback. And right now, many experts have Trevor Lawrence, obviously, Justin Fields, and now a player in Trey Lance out of North Dakota State as the top three quarterbacks that potentially could go to the draft this next season. What is your take on each of these quarterbacks? And if you had a choice, who would you choose to be your quarterback next season? So we got Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and Trevor Lawrence. Yes. It's Trevor Lawrence. Um, <laughs> I know he didn't finish the season on, on a great note, but size, strength, mobility, which is way underrated for him, um, arm strength, arm talent, accuracy, anticipation. I mean, he's got it all. Like, there are throws down the field, specifically down the middle of the field, that Trevor Lawrence makes or even gets close on that – there just aren't any too many quarterbacks that would even attempt those throws. Um, that's where he's different. When you watch him attempt passes between the hash marks down the field, 15, 20, 30 yards down the field and more, that's where he's very different. Um, you know, he's not a guy that relies on a lot of swing passes and check downs and dump offs and slip screens and slants. He can throw those, but his down the field stuff is why he's special. And I think you saw in the playoffs, his mobility became special. And I, you know, I talked about going into the playoffs last year. I said, I, I thought if, if Clemson was going to win a national title, it was going to be on the legs of Trevor Lawrence because I thought teams, the offensive line wasn't dominant. And I thought teams would focus on taking ATN away. And I thought they would focus on coverage and there would be space given to him running the football. And you kind of saw some of that. He took it finally and took advantage of it and he sort of thrived with it so that part of his game is 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 not given enough respect but yeah Justin Fields is athletic and he's got a good arm but he's not Trevor Lawrence and I don't let don't let the numbers fool you Justin Fields with what he's capable of is is not Trevor Lawrence he's not um, right you know I just I, I don't I don't really think that they're – I mean, I personally don't think they're that close when you're talking about ceiling. I really don't. And, again, it goes back to the ability to make throws down the field. And, you know, I, I, it's something that when you watched Joe Burrow last year, like I, I, had, I had LSU twice in the first three weeks of the season last year. So I'm studying on film. I'm watching him. I'm watching his throws. And I mean, I'm sitting there. We get into our production meeting for the Georgia game, and I'm I just I remember telling Jordan and Tom, I said we have got to talk about how LSU is just bludgeoning the middle of the field, and most teams in college football won't even do that. Like they won't even allow their guys 
to attempt some of those throws. They're terrified to try to take advantage of the middle of the field. They're terrified to go at the middle of the field and, and, and try to take some of those throws and throw some of those routes. It just doesn't happen. Um, and some of that is a lack of trust. Some of that is not having a guy that can do it. Uh, some of that is just flat out being scared uh, of, of what's going to happen and what the worst case scenario is. So uh, I think Trey Lance is, is underrated. It's good that he's getting some, some pub and some publicity. Uh, I think he's going to be an NFL quarterback, but I'm not putting him definitely not on Justin Fields level. And so that means he's obviously not going to be on Trevor Lawrence's level also. But right. Not, I, I've studied him and I've watched him and he's, He's solid, but he's just – I wouldn't put him there just yet. Right. And, I mean, I think me and Brandon have both saw the podcast. Trevor Lawrence is probably the best college quarterback at, in our recent memory that we've seen just as an overall specimen of a quarterback. I mean, he is special. And, you know, before moving on, it's early July, and it gives us hopefully one to two months till the season kicks off. As of right now – what teams are you really focusing on? And do you have a way too early pick to that a team that will make it all the way to win the national championship this year? I think it's a lot of the regular cast of characters. Um, I mean, if I pick, if I were to pick a team right now, it would be Clemson. Um, I think, I think we discount what Ohio state is losing up front on defense. And I, I think everybody just, Everybody automatically looks at Chase Young and says, oh, yeah, he's going to be gone, but, you know, it's only one guy. I, I don't – it's it's a little bit more than that. Uh, I think when you look at, at what Davin Hamilton did on that defensive line last year, um, you, know, you look at what Chase Young obviously brought from an attention standpoint and a production standpoint, but I felt like there were three, four other guys along that front seven that were heavy contributors that are going to be gone – that for some reason nobody really wants to talk about. And maybe some people just believe that they had success because Chase Young was getting so much attention or that, you know, the only reason that they were able to do the things that they did is everybody was just focused in on Chase Young and, and they weren't really, weren't really able to do that on their own. It's just that they were freed up or they were, got favorable matchups. But, I mean, you had guys who, who legitimately made plays. And, and I think we're, we're bigger parts of that defense than a lot of people want to talk about. And I think that's going to hurt that team. Um, but I think they're going to be in the mix because of their offense. Um, and, you know, they got Josh Myers back at center. Wyatt Davis is, if not the best guard, the second best guard in college football. The offensive line is going to be good. We've already talked about quarterbacks, so they're in the mix. Um, I would pick Clemson if we're picking a team today, but – you know, I, I think if you're looking for teams to kind of come out of nowhere, um, you know, I think North Carolina is going to surprise some people. I think Louisville could surprise some people. I think Penn State's got a chance to be in that mix. We talked about A&M. They could be a surprise team. Um, I'm really interested to see what Miami looks like because they probably have the best tandem of defensive ends in college football in Russo, Gregory Russo and Quincy Roche. Um, I actually think Quincy Roche is a better football player than Gregory Russo right now. Um, he's not as talented. He doesn't have the ceiling. He doesn't have the body in the frame, but I think he plays better ball consi- more consistently right now. Uh, and then you throw Derek King in the mix offensively with Rhett Lashley down there, and all of a sudden things can be really different this year. So those are some of the teams that I'm, that I'm interested in and I'm paying attention to. I think Iowa State's a really intriguing team, um, really good running back, solid quarterback, tough physical team. 
they're going to struggle if they get on the field with a team that's super athletic and super fast that can spread them out. But I don't think there's a lot of teams in, in college football that are going to step on the field and think they can just punch them in the face and, you know, walk through them. And I don't think that's going to happen with that team. So uh, I think the Big 12 is probably better top to bottom than it's been in the last five or six years. I think it's a much deeper conference. And kind of what I thought the Big 10 was last year going into this season. So those are kind of some of the teams that, that, that I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, definitely. Great perspective. Um, but I have to ask this, you know, I believe this to be true. Zach does too. And we, we kind of want to know your thoughts on it. We think the SEC fans are the greatest fans in college football. You played for Auburn. So we're hoping you're a little bit biased here. So what are your thoughts on that? Who do you think the greatest fans in the country are and why? I mean, if you're talking conferences across the board, it's, there's no debate. It's the SEC. I mean, go, Go to a game in Gainesville and just hear how loud that place is. Go to LSU and it'll be a completely different level. You know, Athens, Auburn, Tuscaloosa. I mean, even Starkville is one of the most difficult places to play in college football. Obviously, everything that happens around the game in Oxford, Mississippi, when Tennessee's rolling, that place is deafening. Um, I'll put it this way. When I go other places, when I go outside the SEC footprint and people ask me to explain – you know, what's different? Why is it different down there? My response is consistent, and it's always, we love to hate more than we love to love. And, I mean, I think that sums up the SEC and the passion that comes with it as SEC fans are almost happier to see their rivals fail than they are to see their team succeed. And if that doesn't paint the picture of what it means – to be a fan of some of those teams, then I mean, I don't know what else I can give you. Right. Right. Uh, and I can, I can, I, I can really vibe with that. I really understand that like to a T. I'm sure Zach <laughs> does too. Yeah, for sure. And we only have two questions left for you here. We're wrapping this up and we had Blake Ferguson, long snapper from LSU on, and he waited on this topic. He was very passionate about it. And I'm sure you have a unique perspective being a former player now turned analyst. So the, uh, what is your opinion on the recent um, pay for play and just paying players? Should they be paid? And we've talked with Blake. We've talked amongst ourselves and other guests about having more financial literacy courses for student athletes. And just in your opinion, should athletes be paid? And how can universities better prepare athletes for the future? And this, the large amount of contracts that we see, I mean, we just saw Patrick Mahomes sign over a, a $500 million contract. Just what is your opinion on how they can better prepare these athletes? If you're just talking pay for play, it's a different it's a different discussion than name image likeness, which is what is sort of the hot button topic right now. My my thought on pay for play has always been what what is what escapes most people's discussion on that is the power of the platform that's provided. And I believe that when you play at Ohio State, Tennessee, Nebraska, Auburn, Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, USC, Oregon, the platform that you're given is going gonna, is gonna to provide for you for the rest of your life. Um, now, there are people that will jump in and say, oh, well, you know, NFL money provides for you the rest of your life. Or, you know, what if somebody could make X amount of dollars while they're playing this and that, which, you know, it's, it's fine to listen to that. But I think those people, they, they're blind to the underbelly of college football. And I don't really know why you would want to inject that with anabolic steroids and just press fast forward to try to make that worse. Cause I think that's what it would do. 
Um, do college football players deserve more? Yeah, probably. Um, but what's going to be satisfactory? And it's another question that I never hear anybody ask because, you know, you had all the when, when the O'Bannon trial was happening, you know, everybody started banging that drum, pay for play, pay for play. And then the stipend came. Um, and you still get the people now. And the people who argue this don't even know that players are getting a stipend right now. Um, you throw you throw stipend, cost of attendance, scholarship check. I mean, you got kids that are getting four or five thousand dollars a month. Uh, and we're not even talking about Pell Grants that a lot of players uh, qualify for, and that's going to add even more to that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that they should be considered employees because you are going to class, you are a student athlete, and people can laugh at that, but most of the people that laugh at that didn't do it. And most of the people that claim free workforce or free labor or – that make these arguments about how unfair it is and they want to compare it to horrific things that have happened within our society hundreds of years ago. And I think that's irresponsible. Number one, I think it's very irresponsible to what happened to those people over a hundred years ago in this country to make that comparison, because I think you're, you're letting them off way too easy uh, by making that comparison. It's disrespectful to what they went through. Um, and the majority of the people, again, who are making that discussion, they didn't do it. So you don't know what comes with it. And I'll be honest, I hate being that guy. I hate being the, I played, you didn't guy, but every now and then somebody needs to put their foot down and allow people to understand that they don't understand what comes with it. You don't understand what it's like being that. And you don't understand, like I have a buddy named Griff Redmill that played at Alabama. And Griff has been in packaging sales the most of his life. Most people would hear that and laugh at it. He actually makes a lot of money. And he'll be the first one to tell you. Every penny that I've made in my professional life has been because I played football at Alabama. Now, your people who are going to be on the side of this isn't fair, pay them, pay them, pay them, gimme, 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 more, 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 I want mine those people are going to say, oh, well, he just had some booster hook him up. That's not the case. Now, did he get an interview because they knew who he was? Or did they take a second look at his resume and give him a chance over a guy with more experience to come talk to him? Yeah, probably. But that has opened doors to allow him to go earn a better living than anybody who was in school at the same time that he was, then had twice the GPA that he did, that took twice the course load that he did, and actually learned more in school than he did. But because of that platform that was provided to him, he's been able to do more for his family than most of the people that were in school at the same time that he was. So I just think that we, we, down, we downgrade the value of the brands of the team. And would there be brands without players? No, I get it. Listen, we can, we can have this ping pong battle all day long. But I think people put down the value of the brand and people put down the value of what college football – as an entity means to people and what its popularity is. And I don't think that you should necessarily just say that all problems are going to be solved by creating a workforce, thus having kids having to pay taxes, having to become employees, which is going to mean giving up pale grants, which is going to mean paying taxes, which is going to mean being on payroll, which means you can be fired at any moment and relieved of your duties 
and a lot of things would change that people would then probably hate more than what they hate right now. Because a lot of people are just looking for something to hate. And they're looking for something to point their finger at and say it's not fair. And it's the number one lesson that I try to hammer into my kids each and every day is life ain't fair. Get over it. You know, all these people that are complaining about college, oh, I can't believe the voluntary workouts. I just, I, they're putting them in harm's way. I can't believe they're making them go back. And, oh, they're forcing these kids to go back. You know what 99.9% .9 of college football players want to be? College yeah. football players. On campus. No, college football players. They want to play in games. That's what they want to do. Nobody's making these kids go to campus. Nobody's making these kids work out. Nobody's making these kids watch film. They know that's what it takes to be great. If you don't want to great, take your ass home. Go bag groceries if that's what you want to do. You know, go work at a sneaker store like I did when I was in high school. Go find something else to do. You don't have to do it. Nobody has to do this. But we treat it like it's this necessity and that everyone should be compensated because they're being forced to do it and in a manner in which they're being forced to do it. And that's just not real. It's not. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great perspective. I know I like, uh, I know on the podcast I've echoed some of what you said, but yeah, I love what you said there. I think that's a great perspective. And, and I think and a lot of that, the kids that are in school right now, they don't, they don't know those things that I just told you. They haven't seen, they haven't seen that the power of what that is yet. And they won't, Maybe not for 20 more years, 5, 10, 15 years. They won't see it. They don't know it yet. But they hear national media members tooting the horn of how unfair things are, and that's why they think they deserve more, and they want more, and they need more, and they got to get more, and they want to get theirs. That's why that happens. That's, the, that, that's what's taking place. There's no college football player that's walking into their 24-hour-a-day dining hall saying, oh, if I could just find something to eat. There's no college football player that's cashing their scholarship check saying, man, if I could just keep the light bill on. There's no college football player walking around saying, man, if I could just put clothes on my back with all the gear that they're getting. It's, those things are not real. They're not. And is it the NCAA's responsibility to bankroll a kid's family? And I, I, I understand where guys come from. I didn't have a lot when I was in college. I played with guys who had a lot less than me. Where does that fall on LSU or Alabama or Auburn or Tennessee to go bankroll a kid's family just because he didn't have a lot growing up? I mean, some of these problems that we're pointing at the NCAA with are not NCAA problems. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. I mean, at being a graduate of Auburn, um, I actually had a friend who lived in South Donahue with the athletes, and I'm, I actually knew about the stipends. I've talked about it on the podcast, and I was friends and had classes with a lot of players, and I've talked to them about it. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people are – like a lot of just average fans are uneducated about the issue and just hear people talking about it and – uh, jump on the jump on a certain whatever opinion they want to ride with but I definitely uh, like that opinion one last question before we let you go and it brings us back to this season Joe Burrow's amazing season and it was a vote we had on the podcast and we even talked to Chris Blair voice of the LSU Tigers about it and the debate seems to be which was the more recent dominant year and it's Joe Burrow's 2019 season or Cam Newton when he ran through 2010 with Auburn which season to you was most impressive or, and most dominant and why which question most impressive or most dominant uh, 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was. I would just say most impressive. Most impressive is Cam Newton. Most dominant is Joe Burrow. The, the kid completed seventy six percent of his passes. He threw the ball five hundred twenty seven times. He threw for fifty six hundred seventy one yards. He threw sixty touchdowns. Six zero touchdowns. I mean, he he blasted the the SEC single season passing record by almost two thousand yards. Um, if you're just talking about impressive wow factor. It's Joe Burrow, but I mean, the, the most ridiculous college football season in history is what Cam Newton did at Auburn in 2010. And I will always go back to this fact, and this is not an opinion, this is a fact. There has not been another NFL rush attempt or reception from the 2010 Auburn football team not named Cam Newton. There was one offensive lineman that started a game and that was because of injury for the New York Giants. So, and that was Brandon Mosley. So you have one guy that started a couple of games on that offensive line in the NFL, no guys who've caught a pass in the NFL, no guys who have rushed the ball in the NFL on that team. And for him to be able to put them on his back the way that he did and do the things that he did, um, and, and by the way, not have a tune-up season like Joe did, and I'm not taking anything away from Joe, but – Cam Newton's season is the most ridiculous season in the history of college football when you consider what he had to work with. Now, the wow factor is with Joe because of the numbers, but and and probably because of the competition. Like, I think LSU is the best team in college football history. And the resume is what speaks to that. I mean, you go down the list and look at the conference champions that they beat, the teams that won their bowl games that they beat, the teams over 500, the teams that were bowl eligible that they beat. I mean, it's it's insane. And you can go back to 95 Nebraska. You can go back to 01 Miami. Go look at their schedules. It ain't close. It is not close to what LSU just did. Uh, and also where they won games. I mean, they went to Tuscaloosa and won. They went to Austin, Texas and won. Uh, you know, they beat Georgia in the SEC championship game in the state of Georgia. So it's, it, it is the most impressive season in history, in my opinion. And that makes them the best team. Now, people are going to say, oh, oh, one Miami had more talent. Okay. Um, 95 Nebraska was more dominant in their win. Okay. But they didn't do it against teams that were as good, that had as good of players as what LSU just did. So they're the best in my mind. And I think you can make the argument that has Joe had the best season. It's absolutely – like that door has been slammed, in my opinion, for a long time, and he opened it. And I think it's him and Cam. And they're they're in that room. Nobody else is in there. And I just think that – when you look at what Cam actually had to work with and some of the teams he did it against, that it makes it a little bit more impressive as to what he did. Yeah, I don't think anyone here will argue with you. I know we just talked about it a lot. I know we had a best team poll. 01 Miami beat uh, LSU by 2%. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, so that was, a, that was a big thing. But if you ask people why, they would tell you Hall of Famers. Yeah. Or yeah. tell you NFL draft picks, which you can't do that because there were younger kids on that team who went on to be drafted. You, you tell me Jacoby right. didn't get drafted? You tell me Derek Stingley's not getting drafted? I mean, you, you tell me Jamar Chase isn't going to get drafted? So you can't do that with LSU right now. So in three years, we can have that discussion. And then in 13 or 30 more years, we can have the discussion about Pro Bowls and Super Bowls and Hall of Fame jackets because you can't do that with this LSU team right now. 
Right. That, that's, a, that's a really good point. But guys, we're, uh, that is a wrap on this interview. Um, we just want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking with us. We know you have a super, super busy schedule. And if we can get a season in this fall, which I know we all hope we can, we definitely would love to have you on again, if that, if, if that would be possible. Yeah, I'm glad to help you guys out anytime. For sure, for sure. But guys, I'm not going to plug any of our social media. That is a wrap on this interview. We'll be back next week with some more big episodes. But for right now, guys, we are out. <laughs>